This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder, looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. Well, you are tuned in to the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing with our topic of our basic existence. We desire for you to navigate through your life with a framework of a worldview, and that's why we are covering the last handful of weeks, really almost eight weeks now, it seems. Uh, We want to have a worldview that is relevant and compassionate. So this is our framework that we've been using. We are every week going over a new topic or a new idea as we dive deep into being honest about our old paradigms and our old structures of thinking and trying to come up with a new idea or new loving worldview as we move forward in from deconstruction to construction of Christianity. So if you remember in previous podcasts, each week we discuss the framework we're using and we are using a outline of worldview developed by an atheist philosopher, Belgium atheist philosopher, in fact, by the name of Leo Apostle. Leo Apostle came up with six ideas of a worldview and how they are constructed. Not necessarily a Christian worldview, it could be a humanist worldview or just a worldview of any kind, are all built on these six ideas. Now, after going through the six ideas of Leo Postel, I would say "Mm, there could probably be a couple more, but if we just stick with this and stick with these questions asked out of these six ideas, I think that we're pretty much in the ballpark of having a constructed, well-rounded, and hopefully using the filters and ideas that we've talked about in this broadcast before, a honest, compassionate, and loving worldview as we put them together. So here is, from this point of view, the Belgium philosopher Leo Apostle's six ideas for the framework of a worldview. First, it must explain the world. And if you listen to our first broadcast, we did our best attempt, the three of us, to explain the chaos that we live in called the world. Uh, Second is, where are we going? That's the question that needs to be answered because where are we going? Keeping the end in mind determines a lot of what we do today. So keeping the end in mind, where are we headed, heaven or hell, or our beliefs about heaven and hell, and really the end of the world as we know it, if there will be. Do we believe in an end of the world? And what kind of end do we believe? Does heaven and earth come together in a recreative idea? Or does it just all burn up? If we believe that it's recreated, it determines our actions in a certain way. If we believe it burns up, it determines our actions a certain way. And we need to be careful about where we're headed. Then what should we do with what we are or who we are? And those are called our values or our ethics. Developing values is an important framework to live by, kind of a guiding principle, set of principles. And that turns into practice. So how do I achieve the goal of my values? Where am I heading? Why am I here explaining the world? The number four of uh, the framework is a praxeology or methodology of the theory of action. Tonight we're covering knowledge 
and knowledge is broken up into different forms of knowledge that we can have. But we are talking tonight about epistemology, the study of knowledge. What is true? What is not true? How do we know it's true? How do we determine something or have the framework of truth? Uh, what does true mean to you? What does true mean to me? What is true and false? What does false mean to you? What does false mean to me? The philosophy of epistemology or the theory of knowledge. That's what we're covering tonight. And then basically constructing a worldview with building blocks, looking at origins of worldview and then the construction of worldview. We're actually ending next week, hopefully, but you know, depending on how far we get this week determines if we'll have a couple of more weeks determining uh, based on our discussion of knowledge. So hopefully we'll, we'll get through. So this six point framework is a best attempt and we've made our best attempt in, in creating a Christian, honest, compassionate style worldview. So we've said this before that when we deconstruct something, let's say we're questioning our faith, we're questioning our ideas, the things that were taught, such things. <clears throat> and if we don't have something to construct, we'll end up, you know, the old adage, I want to be so different, I end up the same. So if we have no forward goal or idea, <clears throat> then we will end up exactly what we know will end up exactly what we've been. So we don't want to end up there. We want to construct something new forward that would that would live out and be more like the love of Christ. So this is our thinking space. We call it our thinking space where what we say is just sometimes openly thinking aloud. <clears throat> so don't hold certain things too much against us. Uh, I call it loose handedness, where sometimes we need to walk into conversations a little loose handed. We do have opinions and such, but remember that our opinions are our opinions. Yours are yours. And this is a thinking space and maybe a challenging space for you where we can just bring up ideas and thoughts that uh, we present. And as we explain the truth tonight, for example, maybe you disagree with us. You can put that in the chat. Maybe you have some different ideas to add. Maybe you totally agree with us and you think that we're awesome. You can put that in the chat. So whatever you want to chat about, we welcome your questions and your support and your critique. Uh, uh, but yeah, here, just like anything, we want you to critique with intellect. We want you to actually ask real questions, good questions, uh, not just questions to get at our goat. So we want, we want basically to get into dialogue and iterative conversation with you. So you can support us financially by going to resonatelife.org. Go to the Give tab. And of course, more importantly than just financial giving, you can give to us by attending these sessions and participating, listening to whatever social media broadcast platform you listen to. You can listen to these. And, and of course, throughout the week, you can interact with us, not just tonight. You can interact and we will respond. Bond. Okay, so tonight, welcome, Sheree and Jake. Here we are again, hey. <laughs> talking about a favorite topic of mine, which was really easy to produce this outline because this is really a, a favorite of truth, of knowledge, the theory of knowledge. And there are questions that basically surround a, a spiritual worldview. Uh, 
spiritual worldview. There's questions that surround that. We need to be able to answer those questions. And one of those questions of a spiritual worldview is about truth. What is truth? We have where we came from, where we're going, why am I here, how should I live, things like that. But then we base a lot of our filter, what's called our pipeline of logic, is built with, let's say you have a pipeline and it's built with sometimes rods of steel and cement because our pipeline of logic is so rigid that something goes in one side in our pipeline of logic and still so many of because so many of those building blocks of our pipeline are based on the truths that we know something goes in one side let's say a fact or an idea or an opinion or a politic or something goes into one side of our pipeline and it comes out the other side filtered through our logic our reason our knowledge what we believe is true and false so if you believe wholeheartedly that the world is flat and this is always my example if you believe with your heart mind and soul in your whole being, your ethos is just completely, completely standing on the foundation that the world is flat. No matter what I say and no matter what scientific data I give you, if it goes through the pipeline of logic, it's going to come out the other side supporting your truth that the world is flat. So you see this all the time in culture where truths are filtered through the pipeline of logic therefore we have fake news therefore we have political biases everything is biased everything is one camp over the other i'm going to bring up something when it comes to truth because i believe that it's very important that that in our current culture uh, when it comes to knowledge or truth there's about two maybe three but let's say there's two predominant camps. Now, some of you might say, don't label me and I want to be in a third space. Okay, be over there in third space. I'm not talking about you. So there's predominantly two camps of, let's say, Christianity. And in these dominant, predominant two camps, one camp has a very rigid belief about certain ideas with scripture, certain tenets and propositions of evangelicalism, which then turn into tenets and propositions of politics and culture, morality and ethics. And it comes out that pipeline of logic with a lot of doctrine of sin. And doctrine, there is some doctrine of grace, but I would say that there is a lot of doctrine of sin in this one camp. Very, what I'll call a rigid belief system. So people like John Calvin and such, and the even Arminius that can't, that like countered uh, Calvin, there were seven points of Calvinism. That is a rigid systematic theology that explains God, explains salvation, explains your <clears throat> placement in the story of God. Usually and then five, there were people though, right? who, oh, excuse me, I said seven. Seven's always a perfect number, but five, yes, five points. It's not perfect. Five points of Calvinism. Thank you. And then there's the counter, which that's why we get Arminianism. So we have Arminian is the counter kind of to Calvinism. That is a very rigid belief. And 
how that played out in history is Calvin, I don't think necessarily killed a lot of people himself. I think he's attributed to one, maybe two people, but he certainly ordered the drowning of many, many people when it came to the rebaptism of Christians and holding them basically underwater because Anabaptism became this counter argument to his utopian Geneva of society that Calvin tried to establish, this perfect like society. So that's called a rigid belief system that can play out in very toxic spiritual environments, uh, dictatorship type uh, environments, and also can lead to a lot of spiritual abuse. And in history, we've seen a lot of death because of rigid belief systems. Then you have another camp. These are the loosey-goosey people that question everything and are constantly questioning things and and questioning the Bible and questioning God and question. I kind of find myself many times in that camp. Do I have rigid belief ideas? Sure. But I find myself more often in the, it's time to question things. It's time to deconstruct things. Now, both camps believe that they hold the truth. Both camps believe that because of the truths that they hold, they are honoring and worshiping Jesus. How is it possible that two different camps of people can have the same end in mind, but hold on to two completely different truth frameworks? That's what we're going to try to solve tonight. I think it's an important thing to try to solve and how we got there. And I think that we need to discuss first um, just knowledge and and what knowledge actually how it is built and what is. I, I think I think a lot of people don't understand basically what is knowledge. I think that we need to really dive deep into the theory um, of epistemology or theory of knowledge to answer that question. Mm -hmm. So there's two traditions um, from where we get our knowledge from. Knowledge is based on what's called empiricism, and that is our experience. So I experienced this. I, I walked in the woods and I discovered that trees were green. Not because somebody told me, but with my own senses and my own experiences, I realized that many, many trees are green. Some trees turn color, but most of your pines and your, your, your such trees like that are in the mountains, it seems, are predominantly green. That's based on my experience. Now, of course, that's based on other things as well, like science and, and the knowledge of just reading and, and listening to why trees are green. But I come to the conclusion through empiricism, based on my experience, that certain things are true and certain things are not true. Then also, my... Shereya, did you have something to add to that? A, a point of clarification? Um, yeah, yeah. I think, so if you look at the scientific method, it's, it's a process of making guesses and trying things out. Um, I, I just want to be explicit that we can lump that sort of scientific inquiry in with empiricism. Uh, right? Yes and no. Yes, kind of. 
because like science is based. Theory. Yeah, when we're testing theories, we're more into rationalism. So rationalism okay. is the other camp of not necessarily based on my experience, but my knowledge of reason or what's reasonable. So a so, lot of the scientific method is based on reason and, and, and experience, both. Both, I think. I mean, wouldn't you say that like at some point we don't need the experience, we don't need to experience gravity to know that it's reasonable to say gravity exists? I guess I always feel like empiricism is what can be measured. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So scientific method falls in that camp. But at what point does science just become, or the truths of science just become a part of us? <laughs> like when I cut myself, my blood is red. Yeah, I mean, right. the I question mean, would be, do you believe that science is something you that can carry truth? And that was science a kind of hardship is, with is, Yes, truth, belief, I think lives outside of science. Yeah, so like that was a hardship with uh, mm -hmm. the pandemic, right? Is that people are trying to discount belief in science and discount um, or even count. I believe in the sci mm -hmm. I believe in science, or I don't believe in science. I'm not going to get vaccinated. Yeah, I'm science get vaccinated. like that. Yeah, that was science the is something to. Yeah, you don't ever believe in science. There's you no such thing as a belief no, in science, it's, right? It's a system of measuring. Right. Right. But you have to ask That's the question then. It. Yeah. At what point does it move out of empiricism mm -hmm. into rationalism? Okay. Does, basically, uh, does this work or not? Yeah, because mathematical principles are a form or a tool of science and mathematical equations require reason. So yeah. two plus two equals four is rationalization, but also a part of measuring, a part of maybe mm -hmm. experience when it initially, but eventually, well, let's, Let's just say there's these two camps. Let's not argue about science, I guess, because that I think science lives outside of truth. Science yes. is a method. Science is a, a group of methods. Scientific method is a actual method of, of proving something that happens um, in life, like let's say gravity mm -hmm. or you know, what is an atom made out of, you know, blah, 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 all the things that we measure, how much weight is, you know, a proton, neutron, you know, I mean, how much weight do those carry? So there's, there's measurements that we can make, but at some point, certain science, I think, actually turns into rationalism, or reason, we'll call it. So there are really two just simple camps of knowledge of where we get our knowledge from and that is reason and empiricism or that's rationalism and empiricism so when we enter into the world right we walk out on the streets we hear things we see things we smell things we taste things we touch things we have five senses 
Now, some people, you know, watch the movie Sixth Sense and they believe they have a sixth sense. But there are five known senses, Mm -hmm. right? If you want to live in the whatever upteen dimension, you can live there. But for the rest of us, there's five senses. And we use those five senses to actually filter or perceive. Now, perception is a very complex network of thoughts, ideas, synapses in our brain. It's a complex process of deducing what am I seeing and what am I experiencing, feeling, tasting, touching through my senses. So it's Our perception or our placement in the world or our perception of how I perceive the world is a lot dependent on just who I am and my brain and how my brain processes things. So I might perceive something completely different than Sharia or Jake. I might be a contrarian and just believe that something is negative and the world is collapsing and oh my goodness and I'm just walking out in the streets and and this is chaos and crazy. But then Sheree is going, what's so crazy? This is beautiful. This is an amazing like environment place. This is the best place I've ever lived. Don't you see the chaos, Sharia? The chaos is just dominating this city. And you go, but this is like water and bridges and beauty and I can get places and, you know, I can go eat good food mm-hmm. and, you know, th- so, so somebody that perceives something, the reason why it's so complex is because we have different senses that sense different things and we process that perception into a form of determined knowledge, of determined knowledge. So I come out of a situation and I see something, my understanding of my habitat is completely different than Jake's understanding of his habitat. And maybe then Jake sees it from a completely different angle where he sees some other form of chaos or beauty. Well, don't you understand this and see this? Well, I think that a lot of our perceptions are based on our passions, our desires, that emotional makeup that is a part of the complex process of determination or perception of the world around us. So there's lots of philosophical traditions around perception, how to perceive the world Mm -hmm. and what way to perceive the world and how we are placed in the world. So, so, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, right? Those philosophers way back in the day supported different ideas of determination or perception. And one of those was platonic dualism, where the body and the mind were separate. So what I did with the body didn't affect my mind. What I did with the mind didn't did affect, did not affect the body. So my, my mind and my body were separate. Well, that's a very dangerous place to be, but I think that we many times live there and perceive the world in a certain way that I, my actions, my words, even my beliefs and my expressions don't affect the people around us and neither do yours. Well, we don't live in that way. We live in a community. So not only is perception a complex set of issues that I am filtering through and determining in my brain, I also have the community around me. Mm 
and the people around me are perceiving things differently and influencing. So now we have the idea of influence. Those that are outside of us now are influencing us because our mind and our bodies are connected and what we do with our brains and our bodies affect not only us, but it affects us others. So you just start verbally vomiting all over the chaos and your perception of the world. And now you have an influence on like, let's say the three of us collectively, then we start fighting through things and arguing through issues and bringing up other issues. And did you see this news feed and this cycle on my social media? And oh my goodness, this chaotic issue over here. And Sheree is going, yeah, but don't you see the beauty over here? This is amazing over here. Can't we focus on this? And Jake's like, no, we need to focus on this. And then we all kind of just collectively sift through all of this perception and influence and 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 algorithms that we're being inundated with and did you not read this and see this and oh my goodness and all of a sudden over a long period of time but now a short period of time with certain technological influences but over a short long period of time we all of a sudden start believing a certain way and out of our perceptions and out of our influences and out of our empiricism and out of our rationalizations and out of our determinism all of a sudden we collectively start to see the world in a certain way and that is what you call a communal hermeneutic and when you start believing a well, if you start believing the same or determining something the same or coming up with a consensus of the same, that is called a communal hermeneutic. So in our communal hermeneutic is how do we understand, let's say, scripture together? How do we understand the truth of scripture or the not truth of scripture that we sit there and argue over? Uh, how do we then come to a conclusion all churches, all societies, all cultures are submerged in their communal hermeneutic, in their communal hermeneutic. So we're going to talk about that a little bit and unpack that a little bit more, but that's an exciting, exciting topic, I have to tell you. Okay, so what are the types of knowledge that we can have? Because we, we base our knowledge on experience and reason, but then what types of knowledge can we unpack? So it's, you know, I know this. Well, why do you know that? Or I know how to do this. Well, why do you know how to do that? Or maybe it's, I believe in this. Well, why do you believe in that? So those questions then, or though just the way that I frame what I believe, what I think, what I know how to do, those are different types of knowledges that I acknowledge as that I plural that I can have different forms of knowledge that I can have. So the first one, the type of knowledge that concerns us is what's called personal knowledge and personal knowledge is based on acquaintance where I'm acquainted with something. So I know that trees are green because I'm acquainted with trees are green. If you're colorblind, then maybe 
trees are gray and you're acquainted with the trees are gray. So something else has to influence your knowledge beyond experience because what you experience is gray. What I experience is green. So it's personal knowledge based on acquaintance. That personal knowledge, well, I know that this person loves me. Why do you know this person loves you? Well, you're acquainted with that person. So it could be very personal or it could be very objective, like an object out there. I know this person's telling me the truth. Why? Because you're acquainted with that person. But I know that this method tells me the truth. Why? Because you're acquainted with the method. That's personal knowledge. But there's something buried deep within personal knowledge, and that is called tacit knowledge. And tacit knowledge is something that is almost mysterious. A gentleman by the name of Polanyi, uh, it sure you have, there we go, personal knowledge by Polanyi. Polanyi is a philosopher that just talked about the idea of tacit knowledge. A fascinating, difficult read, but right at the center of that book is this idea of tacit knowing. And tacit knowing is you just know how to do it. That's the best way to explain, explain tacit why. knowledge. Can't explain why. Where did it come from? I don't know. Um, it's almost like that piece of knowledge is savant. It's something inside of you that you just know. No one taught you. No one said anything about it. You just know. And the best example in all of history, actually, of tacit knowledge is a person by the name of Mozart. Mozart knew music. He knew music to the point that he could just listen to something and write it down. He just knew it. He knew the idiosyncrasies. He knew theory. He knew so much about music. He was consumed with music, but he knew so much about music. Why? Because he just knew the mechanics of music. How did he know that? Who taught him all of this? There's certain people in our society that have an exemplary expression of tacit knowledge for the rest of us, righty tighty, lefty loosey. I mean, that's just, you know, things go tight to the right, things are loosened by the left. Did somebody have to, did I have to experience that? Maybe, maybe for some people it's tacit. Maybe you just knew righty tighty, lefty loosey. I don't know. <clears throat> maybe it's based on your experience. Maybe your mom and dad taught you that. Who knows? But there's certain things that you know about yourself that I don't know about uh, you. Um, I would say, I would say, what do I have a tacit knowledge of you two? Give me a tacit knowledge example for me. I'm trying to think of one right now on the spot. I should have written it down and thought about it. I think some music things you're able to just pick up and roll with it. Yeah. Yeah, I taught myself guitar in two weeks. So like some people like take a lot of time with music and I, I just have never had to do that. I have very little tacit knowledge. I would say that people like my brother have a lot of tacit knowledge. My brother didn't have to study in school. He just like walked into tests and aced math and things where the rest of us had to spend, you know, months in the books. My brother would just walk in and just do it. Right. So my brother has some tacit knowledge when it comes to different things that he knows. Um, maybe he's just listening intently, but for some reason, his 
complexity of his brain can process certain things a little bit different than than most people that that I know with certain things. Um, yeah, music could be one for me. I think Jake's memory, like the holding on of data and to knowing to do that, that that will benefit you in the future is a tacit idea. Like your brain is just different, Jake, than most people that I know when it comes <laughs> to facts and figures and you hold on to information and it's just weird. But <clears throat> but you can just pull weird. things out of, well, in, in the third century, this person said this. <laughs> How do you know that? I read it when I was five. Okay, I read a lot of stuff when I was five. I mean, how do you hold on to that material? So there's something there. You know, call it uh. mysterious, call it whatever. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it's more than knowledge by acquaintance. It's more than that. It's not spending time with a book. It's not spending time with a person. It's not spending time with an idea. It's just something inside of us that we that we know. Then you have procedural knowledge. How do we do something usually is taught. A lot of it is taught in school. How do you do this and that? How do you balance a checkbook? Do we have checkbooks anymore? No. How do you balance? You don't balance your online account anymore. What do we balance? Schedules. Schedules. Thank yeah. you. So we if we balance <laughs> schedules. Um I'm an I'm an old guy, so you know somebody had to teach me about social media and how to do social media. That's procedural knowledge. So so somebody has to actually teach you how to do something or drive something or juggle something or it's just simply something that is taught. And then we have propositional knowledge and that's the facts. Those are the facts that we know. And so the propositions are basically uh, things that we've read about or we hold on to that are just ideas and thoughts from others that are true. So all the angles of a triangle equal 180. Or uh, you ate my sandwich, you know, because you always eat my sandwich or whatever. You always steal my lunch. So it's just a it's a propositional uh, knowledge that we that we have. So the first knowledge of personal knowledge is well it could be based on fear anger emotions of all kinds our personal knowledge could be based on very negative ideas it could be based on positive reinforcements but our personal knowledge is based on acquaintance so our acquaintance of something um, determines a knowledge. So this is where toxic environments and abuse get come into play, where somebody's knowledge is forced to bend a certain direction or forced to bend in a certain preference. And so negative environments can create that. I think that the church has definitely threatened people's personal knowledge and even personal knowledge of God. So for example, you're acquainted with scripture and but those scriptures were taught to you as a lie and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and go, "What?" And then the conclusion is the church has been telling me lies. 
That is personal knowledge and a personal determination conclusion. Uh, so personal knowledge is really important to curate and to care for. It's not something to just take for, for granted. And so we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Procedural knowledge you know, it's ebb and flow. I know how to do something one day, but I need to learn how to do some other things another day. And so like driving a car, I haven't had to be taught to drive a car since I was 15 and a half, whatever years old. So now though, maybe I need to be taught how to get behind the wheel of an electric car. I haven't had to drive an electric car before and it's a little bit different and it's push button and I need to learn the new procedures of mm -hmm. the electrical. So as things evolve and technological advancements happen, we need to learn more procedural knowledge. The propositional knowledge of facts, this is where it gets a little sticky and can be threatened by the influences around me. What determines facts? So yes, all angles in a triangle, right, equal 180 degrees, and that's a fact. I know that's a fact, but maybe a propositional knowledge of fact that you always thought was true doesn't, doesn't play out to be true, and therefore you're going to have to change your proposition. And that's where people get stuck. They can't change their proposition. They learn something new, even if it's true and the fact that you're believing is false, it's easier to believe a falsehood than it is sometimes to change our propositional knowledge. So personal, which includes tacit, procedural, which mm -hmm. is the how-tos, and propositional is our knowledge in facts. So let's unpack that facts thing just for a moment before we get to our questions, because those questions are really important. So there's a theory in philosophy called the tripartite theory of knowledge. Now tripartite, just, just say three parts. So a three-part kind of trifecta of three things coming together to produce a fact. So three things coming together to produce a fact. One is the belief in something. The second is basically the truth of that condition or something or idea. And then the justification of why it's true as a true idea or a composition. So just because you believe something doesn't make it true. But you have to start with the idea of belief. Unless you believe in something, you can't really know that something. Unless you start believing that something exists. So that's where in Christianity, sometimes people think that we're just hocus pocus, right? Because you believe in something that exists, but it doesn't exist. 
And so somebody that doesn't believe something exists versus somebody that believes something exists, our knowledge base of the fact that God exists are, are like on two separate railroad tracks. It's not two rails on a track. It's two separate railroad tracks that are headed in different directions. And so if I pick this idea of I believe in this something, and that's the initial step that I take in fact building or in truth building, I can't know something without first believing in something. So let's just hang on to that for a second. We can just blow that up later. All right. So then the second condition of fact building, the second idea or the second condition of knowledge in this trifecta of truth is that something must be true. So in order for it to be a fact, that something must be true. So I believe in God and God, that being of God actually is the being of God. That being of God exists. So therefore that truth, now I can take the next step. That that being exists, therefore it's true. Now there's a lot of people that believe in a lot of things that don't exist. And so that comes up for debate. What makes that object, that idea, that composition, that thing, that supernatural being, what makes that true? What makes that being exist? Well, that's a complex set of then justifications. So I then come at my belief with the fact that, let's say God exists, therefore God is true, and now I have justifications built, reasoning and rationalizations built around the fact that God is true. So if just because I believe something doesn't necessarily make it true, but in order to believe, in order to make something true, I need to first believe it. Then that thing that I'm believing in needs to be true. And in order to prove that that is true, I use my justifications, rationalizations, reasoning, and many times most exclusively my empiricism and my communal hermeneutic to build the justification rationalization that that thing composition being is plausible. Just to say, it's just in my heart that it's intuitively true. That just because you believe that it's in your heart doesn't make something actually true. Well, that's a lot of answers that Christians are giving these days about the things that they believe are true. I just know it's true. How? They can't give anything besides their perception, senses, and intuition to bolster the justification of why they're believing in something. And so justification is a very important aspect of truth building because if we don't have good justification then we're just we're just crazy town all right so if i look at then those sources of justification would be reason and empiricism and my communal hermeneutic so if you believe that you don't have communal truth take a step back and just look at the silo that you're trapped in of social, cultural, and political ideals. We are in groups right now in our country of communal 
hermeneutics. We're interpreting the world a certain way together in groups. And this group believes the world is different than this group that believes the world is different than this group. And on and on we go with all of these silos of truth builders based on communal hermeneutics, very influenced by some of the technologies that we listen to and have. And information is right in our living rooms and our offices and bedrooms that we can fall asleep on the algorithm of our communal hermeneutic. And so, you know, if you buy something on the internet, your email address is sold and all of a sudden you start receiving all these other emails that are slightly related to the thing that you buy. So maybe the same is true that you click on something and maybe that then is holding information and all of a sudden we're trapped in an algorithm on the internet that other things are in the pop-up window that we then click on deeper and deeper and deeper we go. And all of those influences are our communal truth, our communal hermeneutic in the silo that we are trapped in. But empiricism, my experience, my wisdom, I don't need to chop my hand off to know that it hurts. So that's a little bit of personal knowledge. I haven't had to chop my hand off to know that it hurts, but I know that it hurts. So maybe that's a little bit of tacit experience. I just know that it hurts. I don't need to do it. I don't need to snort cocaine to know that it's bad for me either. And so I just know these certain truths of experience, but then reason is important because in our acquisition of knowledge, a lot of our knowledge has rationalizations and reasoning behind it. So just because we experience it, there's another bank to draw off of, and that is our, our reason. So there's different forms of empiricism. You have classical empiricism, and then you have radical empiricism, and then you have moderate empiricism. So a moderate empiricism uh, would be like, maybe the there's some exceptions to the rule. That would be a moderate empiricistic idea. That we have some rules, but there's some exceptions to the rule. Why? Based on our moderate experiences. That we've seen it, but most often, we are within this certain range of ratios and statistics. Uh, you know, a radical, uh, a radical empiricism is just, I'm just walking around touchy-feely and everything is based on my senses. So I make radical conclusions based on, well, I saw it, so therefore it's true. UFOs exist because I saw one at some point in my drunken stupor on the beach. I saw it, therefore it's true. Well, just because you see something in the sky doesn't make it a truth. So we that is that it would, it would be like a radical, I guess, empiricism. But then, of course, rationalism, you can take that too far. That if rationalism always plays out in your truth building, there's no room for experience. And you know you need experience in order to engage the bucket of rationalism. So... You have empiricism and rationalism building our theory of knowledge. And those are the building blocks of knowledge and our theory of epistemology. So with that, I would like just with that long introduction. Wow. I had a lot to say. That's your introduction. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I mean, should we just camp? Should we camp here tonight and really just talk about the intro and then get into the questions? Because it's yeah, yeah, it's a little. Yeah, I know, I know. Chuck said, "Did speaking come naturally? Public speaking come naturally?" I think Kevin talking a lot came naturally. <laughs> and Fred says here, so we're good to go. Fred's here. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so let's talk the, about the theory of epistemology. Unpack that for yeah. me. Well, I think to reiterate again, epistemology is the study of how of how you come to know or how you mm-hmm. come to um I think believe might is not quite the correct word for this, but but understand and how how you learn basically is the study of epistemology. I think we can you can go into the study of pedagogy, which is how you teach as well. And I think epistemology and pedagogy go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And that's those are dark deep topics for another day do you think um, do you think that pedago the the ability to teach or the 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 framework of teaching pedagogy do you believe that i don't believe that all things are are learned through pedagogy unless you believe that the world is a authoritarian style superlapsarian style God where God is in control like a puppet on a string that God has a worldwide pedagogy he is using to teach us a lesson no I was talking more about about um, not tacit not uh, (laughs) not tacit or or savant style or um, uh, instinctual knowledge, but more knowledge that comes later, that comes through experience or being taught. That's, that's more where pedagogy comes into play. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that you weren't communicating that we live on the world stage of pedagogy where God is our big teacher and this is our stage play of lesson learning. No, but I think I hope not because children die. And so, yeah. How do you, how do you rectify that? Right. So the issue, the issue with pedagogy is, is more of the idea of what we believe is connected to truth we do our very best to impart onto others mm-hmm. in a way that yeah. they will understand. And to embody so, in our own life, which is a part of that. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's the greatest pedagogy we have is that, that it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a lived experience. Um, so that's epistemology is, is how we, how we come to know. And so you talked Shirea, about do you have tacit. Any... Sure. Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. I was just asking Sharia, do you have any other things to add to that? Uh, that opening section? Uh, your opening section or what Jake just said? Well, yeah, he kind of summarized my opening session and, you know, 
10 words versus a thousand and five hundred. Well, I haven't most of what you said, so I mean, I'm thinking about um, <laughs> rational knowledge versus empirical knowledge. Um, I think we tend to think things are rational, meaning they're like objective. And then we put right. objective truths lower than empirical or experiential truths. Um, but like objective truth may exist, but we can only know things through our experience. So even the example of gravity, like we may learn things about gravity, like it's an objective truth. You know, we learn that stuff falls at 9.8 meters per second squared in a vacuum on Earth. Um, but that knowledge wow, is really... Wow, good job. <laughs> good, Thank yeah. You. Yeah, wow, that is like... It's a little, that little knowledge personal knowledge... Per a, proceed, uh, a propositional <laughs> knowledge statement right there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't become real until we fall or until we drop something. So I think right. there's something deeper about our experiential knowledge than our um, rational knowledge. And I think it's dishonest right. when we prioritize rational knowledge. Correct. Well, and, and to add to that, I think that it's irresponsible also to sit on one extreme side of either of those ideas mm -hmm. because honestly we get uh we get our knowledge from empirical ideas and also rational ideas working in tandem yeah. it's not like it's, we're these attaining are these are, these are big words so let's go back to what what is rational and what is <laughs> empirical okay yeah so so empirical knowledge is knowledge based or attained through experience. So I know something because I experienced it. Rational knowledge is knowledge and that's attained based on through, your on your senses. Yes, yes. Touch, taste, feel, smell, hear, those five senses build my empirical self or my empirical knowledge self. Rational knowledge is based on reason. And so reason could be um, like a systematic reason, propositional reason, structural reason. Uh, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of, of um, uh, reasons for reason. <laughs> there's lots of influences to reason. But one thing that we really need to capture, and I hope that we don't lose this, and maybe I didn't explain it good enough. I'd have to go back and listen to the recording after this is done. That both you're empirical- going, You're going to now, so it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. So both empirical and reason. So both empirical and rational, experiential and reason are based mm -hmm. out of a subjective reality. So both are based on my senses, influences, community, context, because just because you have reasonable truths, those are based on something that you acquired 
from someone else or some situation or even the context that you are listening to or influenced by. So something might be based on reason, but it's it's definitely a subjective experience in reality. Mm -hmm. So what I heard you say then is truths that you can taste, touch, smell, see, and hear. hear. All, all, all truths. <laughs> all truths. Yes. Are subjective to where you're at in your position. Yes, 100%. So I'm a Kierkegaardian. The truth is location. So truth is locational. Can be. Yeah. You can also say truth is locative can be but not all truths are locative though not all truths are based on my silo context though so i can i can uh i can base a truth on the opposite of my silo context so i can come up with very reasonable conclusions of truth based on the counter argument that is outside of my influences and subjectivity so that is false and this is true this is built on but you are believing i agree with you but do give an example of that one because that was pretty that was pretty big okay um well let's just bring up politics republicans versus democrats if you're a democrat you're in a silo of community that has a certain propositional personal and a procedural knowledge and so that group believes at least relatively a sense of tenants altogether but if you're against a republican or independent you are also experiencing what they're believing as true based on their propositions procedures and personal knowledge so you know that's false based on what they believe and what you perceive that to be true or false is that a little less complex <laughs> i got lost in between no i mean oh so boy. What how I do i explain that that you can um you can assume somebody else's position and place truth there but to me that's still locative even if it's not existing in me i know it's existing in someone else okay i don't I have think, to be a I... part of a group hold on a second here's a simple his simple sentence i don't have to be a part of a group to know that they are back crazy that their propositions okay. are false, their knowledge is false, and their conclusions are false. I don't need to be have to be a part of that group. So is that is that locative? I I would say that's that is locational because you're saying from your vantage point, okay. their yeah. truths yeah. are false. Okay, so are you but saying I, that I, all I, truths are locative? I well, first off, I I would go back to the original like what you said, because what, what you said is is true that you can, you know, truth 
low I'm, I'm gonna say lowercase t truth i think we're not talking in the, in the objective sense right now at all you know truth based upon the the opposite so so the antithesis right the the opposite and so like in in high school i still remember this right assignment about how we had to describe an object person place thing anything and you had to describe in the negative what it isn't and it was it was a long like bullet pointed list that you would go through and then you would take the same object and describe it by what it is and human nature is to better understand things by what it isn't versus what it is and so always you would guess the object faster and more accurately with what it isn't versus what it is so from my perception of where i stand i can solidify and concrete my belief in truth that that other is false correct purely based on you what know I what you believe. are based upon their falsehood right which is a horrible way to live i think based on somebody's falsehood or their negative emotions or their negative behavior i know more of who i am versus i just find that to be i don't know there's like a thread of toxicity in there somewhere that well, i just feel the like. entire the entire premise of them being wrong and false is that you don't like them and you don't want to be like them well i don't that's the i know but that's the entire <laughs> premise of being being wrong is that you don't want to be them and it right. keeps you stuck to them because you keep having to define yourself according to them. Correct. Mm -hmm. Which well, let let's bring up then that is the political is the political landscape. Right. So so let's bring this up now at this moment because it's the discussion of whether objective absolute truths exist or not that makes one group over another or this group over another perceive themselves as more right than the other. So I have the handle on objective truth. I know, let's say God's truth. God's truth is located in God's word. Therefore, dot, 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 right? I have a handle on God's right. truth versus somebody over here. They're saying, well, just because I'm, well, they sense that they have a handle on some kind of objectivity. The reality, though, is I don't think human beings in general have a handle or even can, they barely can see objective realities, barely can see absolute truths. Every once in a while, we're given a glimpse. Maybe something super super spiritual that cannot be explained by experience or reason happens to you then that's experiential i guess but it has never happened to you before that's unexplainable 
that's experience again. So even the very things that we would claim are objective experiences are really experiences. So Paul would say, and the Apostle Paul would say that the that when we see objectivity or when we experience absolutes, it can only be explained with the things that God has made. And so you will know God by the heavens and the creation around you. Really, the only objectivity that we can have is the magnitude of creation and the magnitude of the heavens around us is the, quote, proof of the absolute. That's Paul's only claim of absolute. Mm -hmm. It's like functionally it doesn't matter if absolute truth exists because regardless we're stuck in our perspective mm -hmm. well right because then we distill down that absolute truth into our subjective experiences whatever we believe is absolute is always filtered through our empirical and reason i mean if you have a very low low expectation of absolute truth i think it is mm -hmm. it's filtered through empiricism and logic well i think the higher our expectation of absolute and objective truth the more susceptible we are of not knowing truth at all Because if I take a truth that is supposedly objective that I cannot see or experience, it's just out here in the heavens somewhere, right? And that's my view that that exists. I have something called a hyper-spiritual worldview. And so my truth never hits the ground. It's never practical. And so I guess the higher my objectivity of truth becomes, that's what Kierkegaard would say. You know, it's not, it's not practical. It's not real. So I think that that's where people have really had a disparity with the church is that we speak in these absolute truths. Yet we're speaking up here in hyper-spirituality. And it's not a practical reality. And a practical reality is my influences, my experiences, my community, my history, my teachers, my professors, when it comes to the Bible, my interpretation of that is subjective. So functionally, it's the same thing as there being no absolute truth. <laughs> right, well, I mean, does there have to be absolute truth for God to exist? I mean... I think when we label God truth, then yeah, then they become dependent. Mm hmm. Yeah. I think so in the Bible, we're given a glimpse of absolute, yet that's all filtered through my subjectivity, experiences, and reason. And also that of the authors. Right. Right. And Go ahead, Jake. You were going to say something. <laughs> yeah. What were you going to say, Jake? Your, 
the the idea of absolute versus subjective truth, which we can we're supposed to get into probably. I mean, Eventually. next week, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And just to give a precursor to what I think it's in my section, I talk about that. I think we we talked a lot tonight about that truth is is based upon the location that you are interpreting events, actions, feelings from. And so then that's and we should label those all lowercase t truth. Okay. And then you get into the idea of of uppercase truth, the objective truth. And objective truth and we're talking about it next the question we have next next week is is if it is objective truth does it need to be defended and so yeah, what, that's our bonus question for next week that's our that's our bonus question for next week it's something to think about as well is that or is that truth in imminent truth that it's in all of us and that's easy to mirror and so yeah it's just just some things that and a thought of to really differentiate and what you all of us feel is is true truth is it a lowercase t is it a capital case t is it objective or subjective and when we begin to take all of our truths as objective and what we what we define the world as as complete objective and then start to impose those upon others mm-hmm. and not taking account to their their origin story uh, we talked about origin at the beginning uh, that's family of origin that's culture of origin that's scarcity mindset that's all a whole sorts of things that we have to deal with then truth can definitely be skewed and so I just so let me thro- let me throw this out here this is a this is a um, moltmann jürgen moltmann is a theologian from germany and here's a idea from him there's really only i guess one absolute idea and that's promoted all through the new testament that god is god who sent god's son jesus to the earth as a representation of god's self and through jesus we are saved now that idea is very mystically spiritual. Like I, I can't, ex- I didn't experience that. And I read about that in the Bible. Um, I guess there would be one more very solid, uh, big A absolute like T truth. And that would be the greatest command of God. And that would be the when when Jesus flip flopped the Old Testament to the New Testament, and in the Old Testament it says to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, 
And Jesus flip-flopped that and said, love your neighbor and love your enemy. So the greatest command would be our response to the absolute, God, Jesus, uh, and God sent God's son as a representation of self for the forgiveness and the salvation of humankind. Therefore, love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there's three parts there. The expression of that absolute is love, loving God, loving neighbor, loving self. That's the expression. That's the only absolute objectivity that I can have. Everything else, like how to love, how my love is supposed to be expressed, um, what is love, like even our definition of love. I think Jake is bopping his head to baby don't hurt me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, so the idea or the expression or the, or the interpretation of that becomes very communal, hermeneutic, experiential, and reason of the community versus um, some absolute. So Jake, you're very right. And we then distill down the procedures, the procedural knowledges and the other, like really the only propositional knowledge that I have is that God is creator. Jesus is redeemer and spirit is the sustainer, salvation of humankind expressed as we then respond, love God, love neighbor, love yourself. That's the only objectivity of truth that I can grasp onto. The rest of it becomes very personal, experiential, communal, procedural. But that's where we fall short as teachers and preachers and teachers, Sharia, in Christian schools and such, is we teach our interpretation of the how-to procedures and the and the personal knowledge and experiences and reason. We then teach those as the objective truth. That's what I heard you say, Jake. Correct. And so the only objective truth that that the cosmos has if we can go even that big tonight right. based upon this conversation and and hopefully and we will get into this more next week is the personality of god and so anything outside of that personality of god is subjective to that and so it's either Give me a positive. An example. The personality of God. Uh, the personality of God. So you talked about love. I would. I would probably more point to Exodus thirty-three and thirty-four when it talks about uh, the Lord, the Lord, God, the full and gracious, mm. slow to Loving anger and abounding steadfast love. Right. Right. And so you have that that steadfast loveness of God, that that womb, wombness of God we talked about earlier in Exodus 
uh, podcast mm-hmm. we went through. The all of history hinges on on the personality of God, and you talked about love and love neighbor, love God. That's that is the personality of God. Mm-hmm. How we do that is subjected to that, and so yes, yes. But, and how we do that can also be the exact opposite of how we don't do that. It's right. still subjected to that. The don't do that is still subjected to the do that, right? Or right. that which is. And so if you look at what's the opposite Well, let's pause. Of- okay, let's pause for a second there. So above the equator theology is much different than below the equator theology. And below the equator theology looks at the personality of God differently than above the equator theology. So African, South American theology is definitely different than Euro-American theology. Bless you. Thanks. So, yeah, no evil spirits entered your nostrils. So, so how how do you explain that if the personality of God is objective? I mean, I would not say that they do. I don't think the personality... What? That they view the personality of God different than love. Well, they definitely look at the personality of redemption, which is a characteristic yes. of God, much differently than a Euro-American theology. Much different, but that that is their definition of redemption is subject subjected tr- to the personality of God, which is love. And so, so Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, if you'd lined up words on a page, and these are the objective truth statements, and the way that I've always visualized it is you are hovering. So right now I hear you hovering right here, that we have this objective truth, but our subjective experiences, rationalizations, reasons, determinations, senses are lifting these words into a practical like are they at some point there's a very close relationship between subjectivity and objectivity that's what i'm trying to say yes because subjectivity is subjected to the object right it is subjected to something and it's subjected to the object and it's also subjected to your location and when you draw that triangle between your Mm -hmm. object the location that becomes your view of truth. That's your focal point. Trey, do you have anything to add to that? Because that's really complex. It is. That it sounds solid. Triangles are a real stable structure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So so the couple of conclusions that we've come to is most often our objectivity that we're claiming is objectivity is more based on subjective empiricism and 
and rationalizations, reason, experience and reason. Yet there is some form of objectivity, absolute, that can be categorized in the greatness, the magnitude of God. And that really is where that objectivity needs to land. Even when I hear the words of God, right? Let's say God showed up in my living room tonight and spoke the very words, the words of God in my ears. The telephone, the old telephone game proves that it's only one person away from being subjective. They hear something slightly different, even that it's not even one person. It is one person away from being subjective. I then is, take those words. The listener, yeah. I take those words and and listen to those words differently and, and reinterpret them into another form of that truth. So mm -hmm. therefore, I can, I can hover right next to as close to that object objectivity but there's always according to the kierkegaard model there's always something that is right there right there next to it so to bring up malcolm gladwell in his book talking to strangers it kind of talks yeah. about he, he writes a lot about how misinterpretation and how we can take an instance and create two very different stories out of it based yeah. upon our location and where we're experiencing and viewing things from. And so, um, I mean, the one that stuck with me most, there's a lot of case studies in there. Uh, the one thing that stuck with me the most was uh, they, they defined and took human emotions based upon facial expressions and in a Eurocentric, um, I, th I believe is the United States, but I'm not sure. Um, mm. And then put those, gave those pictures to children on some island out, off, off the coast of India. And mm. the emotions had like a 10% match based upon facial expression to what they expected them to be. And those facial expressions meant something much different. Mm. So smiling or mouth agape, or those could all be much different emotions so that when you are even speaking to someone and it's like 90% of all communication is body language, when your body language doesn't match up to the same definition of body language, like try to explain truth at that point. Right. Who's the author that said all leadership is emotion? Um, what's his name? What is his name? Is it the Christian guy? Is it well? No, no, no. Travis Bradbury and no, John no. Graves. Uh uh. Uh uh. Not that one. No. How about the uh, one that talks about hurting? Daniel Goleman. No, oh, no. Uh, hurting family systems theory? 
Yeah, and yeah, family, family systems, systems theory, theory, but it talks a lot about uh, herding. Friedman, Friedman, Friedman. Yeah, Gord, Gordon Friedman. No, uh, Friedman's, Friedman's failure. failure of nerve. Thank you, failure of nerve. So Fried, Friedman's failure of nerve talks a lot about um, everything is emotion. All of our decisions and all of our thinking are filtered through our emotions, and so therefore the truths that we have are very emotionally charged truths versus somebody else's truth is a very <laughs> emotionally charged uh, truth. It, that's Daniel Goldman's book, though. Know, Do you have the whole uh, premise, failure? The whole premise is learning to lead with emotional intelligence. Oh, right? emotional intelligence, yes. So, <laughs> so, but the one that did a lot of that primary research was Friedman. Um, and and Friedman basically gave a really solid foundational uh, conclusion that because uh, the because I make decisions and believe certain things based on so much emotion, we need to be very close, cl uh, open handed, not closed handed, to the things that we believe that we think are so true. Because next week, somebody might give a counter based on their emotions and their decisions and their conclusions that might be more rational, reasonable to conclude. It might be Vulcan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sharia, let's, let's yeah. close with... Can you close us down with some... Maybe some conclusions. Summarize a couple of oh, things boy. for us in the end here. Land this 747. The belly of the plane has gotten really big. It has. <laughs> I mean, so absolute truth may exist. Functionally, we're stuck viewing it inside our own perspective. Yes. If we could all own that, maybe we'd have more productive conversations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is perfect. That is perfect. Well, I guess the productive conversation is going to happen next week. We have gone an hour and a half talking about just the functionality <laughs> and the makeup, I guess, not even the functionality, but the makeup of knowledge and coming up with, I guess, just an explanation of the theory of knowledge. So next week, we're going to cover some questions about it. It's going to be a little more, I hope, practical, where we're actually going to talk about how it relates to our Christian faith and what is truth according to scripture. We're going to look at some scriptural uh, context and how does truth and grace relate that's coming up next week and along with just practical views of truth how it plays out in our society in our cultures in our groups in our churches in our in our small groups culture and politics so we're going to talk about all of that next week and so with that we're going to sign off thanks everybody for joining us thanks jake and shreya for your input tonight uh, we hope that you got something out of tonight and so good night everybody thank you Good night.